Welcome to our bonus podcast, More Mercy, where we dig deeper into the subjects that matter to you. Today, I'm joined by Joe Thorne, the pastor of Redeemer Fellowship in St. Charles, Illinois, the author of Note to Self, and the host of Doctrine and Devotion, a podcast exploring Christian faith and practice. Joe, how you doing? Hey, first of all, I'm not the author of Note to Self. I'm an author of multiple volumes. Okay, I've multiple written many books. Small books. It doesn't matter how big they are. They are very many, small. Five is me- like, so like one, the t- a couple is two, uh, a few is three. I've written five books. But they're all many. little. You've, many. You add them okay. all if, up, they're yes. my book. That's true. That's true. However, different publishers, That's different true. contracts. That's very true. And yeah, I just got a royalty check. Want to be honest? Yeah, be honest. I just got a royalty check on my three books that came out through Moody's. Those three books combined, I get one check twice a year. Mm-hmm. Should, we, should we pull back the, the, the curtain? Should we open the kimono? Should I tell people what the proceeds are from my book? Pull it back. Okay. Pull it back. $15. And this is why we get into writing, folks. This is why we do it. Big money. Yeah. Those are good books, too. (laughs) Everyone who's like, well, why do you have a job when you're an author? And you're like, do you want to talk about the royalty checks? (laughs) Yeah. By the way, uh, just because somebody's a published author, it means nothing. There's lots of weird, crazy people that have written books that are published and a lot of bad books out there, too. Yeah, that, that, that's not a, a lot of people will publish things that really do not need to be provided for <laughs> the consumption of the masses. Yeah. So just because, you know, it's like, hey, just because you have a tattoo doesn't mean you're a tough guy. Just because you have a book doesn't mean that you're a, a, a genius or that you're or you're like super successful. It just means that you wrote a book. It just means you got that barbed wire it means tattoo. You can write a book. You can. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Well, yeah. you know, there's some pastors some that have like Jared Wilson write it for them and then they just put their name on it. That he doesn't do that. I'm just saying this kind of thing. You know? Oh, yeah. I, I know several <laughs> authors who, when you pull back the curtain, you realize, well, their first three books, they didn't write them. They, no. had some, they were ghostwritten. Yeah. Or they'll like, they, like uh, some editor will just take their sermons and then they'll fashion them into a book for them. It's like, yeah, that's not writing a book, man. Well, and so you write books for the church. Five books. You write five. I've written you've five written books. Five books. All by for myself. The church. Why? Why? Like, what possessed you mm. to write books for Christian audiences, specifically those who are trying to just navigate the mess of everyday life in the local church context? I'll be very serious. I, I preach and I write primarily for Christians because I believe it's a part of my calling. Right. Some people are hardcore evangelists. Some people are hardcore apologists and they're called by God to be in the world to a greater degree than I am with a, with a platform or something like that. But I feel very called to help God's people to serve the church. And I genuinely love the church. I love God's people. You know, I go to different churches and it's like, oh, this church is more charismatic or this church is more dispensational or this church is more reformed. I love God's people and I can see that we all have needs, that we all have weaknesses and strengths. And so we can learn from each other. I want to help the church in areas where I think I can speak in a way that will help them with what, what little I have learned so far. So like, I just want to, I want to help God's people. I love the church. And, and I had, listen, my first experience with the church, I was what? I was 17 years old. The first time I stepped foot into a church that I wasn't vandalizing. 
And I stepped into this church. I was invited by a girl. I went into this church wearing a Slayer t-shirt, earrings, long hair, all the chains and everything. And they didn't bat an eye. They welcomed me. Well, that's beautiful. They were kind to me. Wow. It was a Baptist church, not a, not a reformed church, not just a regular old Baptist. Was the pastor in a Slayer? No, they, they were no. They didn't like Slayer. They were not into Slayer. Now, here's the thing. They love me. And then when I became a Christian, I didn't think they would believe I was real. I thought like, they're going to think I'm faking it because I'm trying to get with this girl, this Christian girl. And, uh, but they did, they didn't doubt it. They received me. They encouraged me. They loved me. It was, it was something. So I love the church, man. So this has given you a passion to speak life into the church. Yeah. And part of it is to be honest, as a new Christian, I'm reading the Bible all the time because not, not because I'm super spiritual because I didn't, I didn't know anything. I didn't know the story of Cain and Abel. I didn't know the Bible. Yeah. No church background. So I'm reading the Bible a lot. I'm reading through it over Everything and over again. is brand new. So I'm nerding out. Like yeah. this is exciting. And so the more time I spend with God's people, the more I realize like as an outsider coming in, I could see some, maybe some weak things that maybe they weren't seeing. And so it was never like, I'm going to fix the church or you guys are doing it wrong. It was more like, Ooh, why don't we talk more about these things? Or why are we having this kind of a struggle? And so, yeah, I've just, uh, man, I love the church. I, I wouldn't be alive without it. That's for sure. Well, and that's why I wrote Vulnerable, because there's a lot of well-meaning Christians in congregations that are trying their best to love their neighbor. Right. But they haven't thought about this. They're spending so much time, the poor pastor is spending so much time trying to keep the lights on and keep people from bailing that they don't have the time to construct a biblical theology of vulnerability sure. and really think through all these questions. Well, people have... If we, if Jesus has to teach his followers how to pray, do you think he might have to teach us how to serve the vulnerable? Right. Yeah. That's what your book is. That's the whole point, right? Is we don't, we need to be taught. We need leaders and teachers in the church to help us move forward in these areas. And so as you're writing these books, you're helping. There's five of them. Five books. These five really tiny books. Tomes. You can, you can call something that's basically a pamphlet a tome? I, first of all, it's not a pamphlet because pamphlets are stapled. Well, then I have many internet tomes on lmpg.org. Our blog has many tomes. Those are blog posts. They're tomes. Blog post. No, tome. If it's a tome, it means it's bound. If you can call your book a tome, I can, yeah. call, I can call what I'm doing right now a tome. Okay. I don't think you know what tome means. Let's look it up. T-O-M-E. <laughs> Am I spelling that right? I think so. Uh, it's a book, especially a large, heavy, scholarly one. <laughs> it doesn't say that. It, that's exactly what it says. <laughs> that's what it says. <laughs> so I have not written a tome. Of all the books that you've written, all the many books, the leather-bound books that you've written, mm-hmm. what's your favorite? Uh, it's, people aren't going to like it. I don't have a favorite. And it's not because I love them all. I think about them like this. Note to self, everybody has been, everybody at that point, twenty. That was his first small book. My first tome. That book came out when a lot of people were talking about the need to preach the gospel to themselves. And here's what I recognize. People talked about preaching the gospel to themselves. They never talked about preaching the law to themselves. And you can't preach the gospel to yourself unless you also preach the law to yourself. So I recognize that there was a theological sort of misfire happening the way that some people were talking about it. Plus, I understood they didn't know how to do it. Like, what does it look like? And so that, that book has been the one that most people have read and are familiar with. And so I'm happy with that. The second book I like because experiencing the Trinity, 
That was really pulled from my journals, really, with what that is. It's a s- series of devotions and reflections on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and, what we, and how we're supposed to experience God in our lives. And then the other three are on the church, like what the church is, what the church believes, and how the church is supposed to do life, how we are supposed to do life as Christians. So they serve different purposes. I don't have a favorite, but maybe, maybe the first one is the coolest because it was the first thing I wrote. You know, that's kind of cool. Well, and Note to Self was very formative for me. Because at that point in my life, I was really wrestling with how do I preach the gospel to myself? And the more I dug into it, the more I realized I needed to preach the two words, law and gospel yeah, to myself. Yeah, all of the word. Yeah. Because law diagnoses the problem. When you see that you are not perfect, you see that you have been measured and you're found wanting. But then you see the gospel that Jesus fulfilled the law on your behalf. Yeah. It was like he put your clothes on and lived your life for you and not only died your death, but rose for your vindication. Yeah. And so, and by the way, the law is no longer a curse or a burden, right? You delight in it because it's God's, it's still God's will and his ways. And now he empowers you to begin to actually walk in it. It's all good. Though you may not keep the law perfectly. No, no one can. One did. Yes. Yes. I feel like some people, they'll be like, okay, I'm a Christian now. Now I need to get right. And God doesn't save you and says, all right, go for it. You know, the gospel is for Christians as well. Yes. Yeah. I used to be a part of Acts 29 back in 2008, and I was on one of the assessment team. So we would assess a lot of church planters. And mostly we said, no, you guys aren't ready to go. But we're talking to this one guy and my job was to press on the theological issues. We had three guys doing the assessment. I was a theological guy. But this other guy, John Bricker, he's a pastor. He's talking to this guy. And he says, you keep talking about the gospel. Like, explain what the gospel is. And anytime he would explain the gospel and he's like, what have you seen the gospel do in your life? Every time he talked about the gospel, he talked about it as an offer to the unsaved, as hope for sinners that are lost. And he finally said, brother, when was the last time the gospel was good news for you? Mm. He had, he didn't really have an answer, but that stuck me in the heart. Like it's never left. I ask myself all the time, is the gospel still good news for me? John Bricker, baby. Is the gospel good news for me? I was talking to someone who would identify himself as a stoic. He believes in the principles of stoicism. His father Mm -hmm. was a good Southern Baptist and his dad would do street preaching. His dad's a very evangelistic person. He loves people. But this guy, I'm sitting there talking with him. He's like, you know, here's the deal, Raleigh. Like, I don't buy it. I'm like, well, tell me, what don't you buy? He goes, so many of you Christians. He's like, I don't want to offend you. I'm like, believe me, you're not going to offend me. Try. Like, he's like, but so many of you all, you're just talking about the life hereafter. You're not talking about the life Mm -hmm. here and now. Mm -hmm. Stoicism deals with the life here and now. And I said, what if I told you that eternal life, it's for now. Yeah. And it continues. And he's like, what? And I said, the gospel is for now. And it continues. The gospel is what frees me from my own self-deprecation, from my own self-loathing, from my own self-hatred. It frees me from my past. It frees me from my present. And it reminds me that my standing with God, the person that matters most, is okay. But it's not okay because of all the things I've done to try to earn my salvation and my own self-salvation project. Mm. I'm okay because of Jesus. Yeah, But... I have heard many people from the pulpit, they preach the gospel, 
but they almost preach the gospel as law. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, or they preach the law as if it's gospel, right? Yeah, I, well, we totally see that. The, what your friend is saying is missing out on, and again, we all have impressions of what the church is all about based on our experiences, sure. right? So I totally, I'm sympathetic to that. And if he were to say, you guys only focus on heaven, I'd be like, I understand that. I, a lot of churches do. But what, like a big principle in Stoicism, right, is self-control. Right. The scripture has a whole lot to say about self-control, where it comes from, why it's important. And you would say the only scripture that he likes is Ecclesiastes. He's like, because it's real. It's to the point. Yeah. It's, it's this truth and it's wisdom. And I'm like, exactly. But even in Ecclesiastes, right, it says, listen, um, it's all vanity. It's all a chasing after the wind because we're all going to die. We're all going to end up in the dirt. Right. Your money you can't take with you. So what is, what is, what is the, the preacher saying in Ecclesiastes? He says, the best thing is, is to fear God and enjoy your toil. Hmm. Like, because that's, it's like fearing the Lord isn't being afraid of him. Think about it like this. You talk about the, like the future and the present and eternal life. Jesus says that eternal life in John 17 is, he says, I pray that they might have eternal life. I've come that they might have life. And this is eternal life. This is what Jesus says. This is eternal life, that they would know you and the one that you have sent. It's knowing God now. It's being reconciled to God through Christ, his mercy and his merits, having that knowledge, being reconciled, communion with God now, which enlivens us to learn things like self-denial, self-control. Because we are no longer living for ourselves. This puts us, I think, in a different category than the Stoics. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for God. But that gives us the principles that are, in some ways, complementary to some of the things that the Stoics say. I think when we focus on the present and we're able to say, no, God's grace matters now. He's rescuing me now. Someone told me this when I was an intern. I think I was 21 years old in Georgia at a church. He looked at me and he said, God has saved you. He is saving you and he will save you. That gave me a framework to understand that I am being saved. Yeah. That means that the gospel is for now. Yeah. But if you give the gospel to someone without also focusing on the law, I think you, you can kind of shortcut the system a little bit. Could you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, the good news, right? Gospel means good news. Um, there's good news and there's bad news, right? The good news, it, people don't need good news, right? They don't, they don't need hope unless they understand that there is a dilemma, that there's a, a problem, right? So what is the drama and the trauma in, in all of this? I like to say it like this in my first book, my first tome. I explain that the law tells us what's right, what's wrong, and what's needed. So the law tells us what's right. Love your neighbor. Right to summarize it, that's what Jesus says. All of the law basically says, "Love God and love your neighbor." So, love is the summary of the law. It tells us to love, to to look out for others, to live circumspect, careful lives, to care for those who are in need. So, the law tells us what to do. It tells us what's right. What's right? God's ways. Those are good. These are principles. And even people that don't believe, we share these basic instincts, right? Uh, like stealing, taking what doesn't belong to us is wrong. Hurting people, hurting the innocent is wrong. We understand these things. So it also tells us what's wrong. And what's wrong is, is that I don't do those things. I mean, I do them relatively sometimes, but I, I frequently, most of the time, I'm breaking those laws, at least in principle. So the law tells me what's right, God's ways. It tells me what's wrong, my ways. And it tells me what's needed. And what's needed is God's grace 
his mercy, his forgiveness, his help. He gives me Christ. So Christ fulfills all the laws for me that I've broken, but then he empowers me to learn to walk in those ways. So the gospel is always good news, but it's in the context of the, the, the curse of the law. What's right, what's wrong, and what's needed. That is a great way to see the law. Because I was talking to someone recently, and the person comes from a different type of evangelical background to where he says he might have seen the law abused in churches, mm-hmm. and now he's like, we don't need the law. Old Testament, the Old Covenant is crucified at the cross with Christ. Now I just read the New Testament. I do not read the Old Testament whatsoever. I do not see a place for the law in my life. But for me, I look at that and I say, well, I got to push back because the law shows me where I need to apply the gospel. And you look at the reformers, specifically Martin Luther. Martin Luther really pointed to, we need to see the law, but we also need to see grace. And as we do this, we're working all of this stuff out in our vocation. That's where this all plays out. And what you do, this is how you love your neighbor. This is how you ultimately spread the gospel is through your vocation. How have you seen law and gospel play themselves out in what you do? Well, first I would say that as a Christian, I believe that the law is good. It's not bad. The law is God's law. Um, The law is holy, just, and good. Paul says this, the law is spiritual. Uh, The law functions as a grace because it shows us what we lack and what we need. What I lack is righteousness. What do I need? Forgiveness and righteousness. Where do I find it? I find it in Jesus. So the law is good. And in Christ, I'm delivered from the curse and the burden of the law. And I'm now empowered to embrace it for what it is, a guide for my life that the spirit, you know, works in me. So I don't, I don't even view the law as a bad thing. I think the law is, is a good thing. It just serves a different purpose. Well, and it can't empower what it demands. It cannot. The gospel does that. Jesus does that. So the law says, this is the way. And I say, but I don't do that. And Jesus says, I did it. And now I want you to walk in my ways and I'm going to empower you and equip you to do it. So in, you know, in my life, I mean, goodness, we could, you know, I guess, look at uh, any particular issue that I've struggled with, but let's just say lust. We'll We'll deal with lust. This is just for men, right? No women listen to this podcast. Good. We're good. Okay. So here's the truth. All people, men and women struggle with lust. In my case. And we're all sexually broken. Yes. Yeah. Everybody, listen. Everybody, Everyone who's listening to this mess. podcast, whether you know it or not, you are sexually broken. Yeah. Because uh, you are a sinner. We're all in the same boat. And it manifests itself in different ways in different people. 100%. So, so lust in my case manifested itself in different ways. So like as a little kid, I had full access. I'm an old guy. So back in the day, there was no internet, but I had access to hardcore pornography from about seven years old on. Now, all kids have access to that today in the internet. So it's a very scary situation. Absolutely. But I was like, my parents were like, yeah, man, whatever. Like, do your thing. It's fine. And so I was, I I was really raised on all, like all kinds of things like pop culture and TV, but pornography was a big part of my life. So lust was a part of my being, like lusting after women. And then I became a Christian. I'm like, finally, no more lust. And it turns out, <laughs> turns out I still lusted. I was still lusting as a Christian. And then it was like, well, 
I'm going to get married. Woohoo! Finally, now I can actually have sex that glorifies God and is desirable and pleasurable for both of us. I won't lust anymore. And <laughs> well, did you did you doubt your salvation in those moments where you're like, well, I'm supposed to have it all together. Oh, like, yeah. what is my problem? There were two times in my life. One, I was about a four four year old Christian, and I tried to walk away. I was like, listen, I wouldn't struggle with lust like this. I wouldn't still struggle with lust. And I wouldn't struggle with pornography at all if I was a real Christian, you know, because I've been crucified to the world. So I wasn't doubting the faith. I wasn't doubting God or Jesus. I was doubting my faith. So sure. I thought like, I must not be a believer. Right. And so I right. said, I'm, I'm done. I can't take it anymore. I'm, I'm a hypocrite. I'm gonna walk away. I woke up that day and I went to work. I didn't read my Bible that morning and I just went to work. And because I didn't read my Bible, I was early. So I stopped off at Dunkin' Donuts. And I, I ordered a, a donut and a cup of coffee and I sat down at the bar and there was something sticking out from underneath a napkin dispenser. And I slid it out and it was a tract and it was just the gospel. And I grabbed it. I went into the bathroom and I cried. It was like, God's like, hey, dummy. Like, yeah, you, first of all, good luck running away from me. You're not going to run away from me. I've got you. God will show up at the Duncan. Yeah. Oh, he's in there. Oh, yeah. He, he, he's. I was surprised. Never knew God was from Boston. Uh, he's there. And, but it, it was like, it was a, it was a very clear call. Like, no, listen, you need the gospel today. You need it every day. And the other time I was a student at Moody. At, uh, this was, I guess, probably later that, maybe the next year. And I met with a professor who was super disciplined, super godly. He was my Greek professor. I took him for like, what? Like nine credit hours of Greek. Super smart, disciplined dude. And I met with him and I said, look, I am really struggling with my, with, with whether or not I'm like a strong or even real believer because I keep struggling with lust. And he said, well, what do you think I struggle with? Wow. And I said, not lust. And he goes, of course I do. And he said, the difference is, is I've learned how to fight it. I've learned how to wage the war, but it took me years to learn how to stay. And I have to stay in this fight for the rest of my life because like I'm still in the flesh. So here's how it worked. The longer I've followed Jesus, there were certain things that he brought to mind that come from law and gospel to help me fight back against lust and pornography. And the highlights are, one, and God showed me this very clearly at a particular point. When I'm looking at a woman or thinking of a woman in a lustful way, I am using her. I'm not loving her. Right. She's God's. Mm -hmm. She's not mine to do with what right. I want. And I am in that sense abusing her. Mm. And if it's involved in pornography, I am celebrating her abuse, her potential trafficking, her prison. And I'm, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to love her. I'm supposed to point her to God. I'm supposed to serve her. It wrecked me. That's the law. Show me what I'm supposed to do. That is all really good. And that drives me to the gospel. I haven't loved like I'm supposed to. And then I look at Jesus and how did he love the prostitutes? How did he love these women that were broken? He did it all perfectly. So I look back to Christ and I go, he did what I didn't do. So in him, I know that I'm safe. I, he, I know that I'm cleansed from these sins, but now he shows me the way and he empowers me to walk in that way. So like that would be one of the areas of my life where, you know, again, it's not that I don't struggle with lust, but it's that, God has taught me how to fight it. And the way that I fight it is by allowing the work of the law and the gospel to bear fruit in my life. 
when we think about speaking the law and the gospel to ourselves, especially about these issues. There is something that comes with the law that I think sometimes we don't give enough credence to, and it's the idea of acceptance. It's the idea of reality. It's the idea of realizing that the law will point you to what is. Mm -hmm. Um, The law calls a thing a thing. It's like, this is sin. You are missing the mark. This is not the way it is supposed to be. Right. And so as law calls lust a thing, you're able to look at that and say, okay, I can accept this. This Mm -hmm. is my reality. I have often heard people, especially in Christian circles, say, I am struggling with fill in the blank. Oh, I know. By the way, I know where you're going to go with this. I want to take this in again, because this was really helpful for me when you and I talked about this a while ago. So, okay. So back up again. Okay. We say, I've said it. I'm really struggling with, we'll say lust. Yeah. Okay. That's what we say. We will say, and, and this wasn't exactly what you were saying earlier, but I know I have said, I'm struggling with pick your sin. Right. But I am struggling with lust for the sake of context. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, yeah. whatever. I'm struggling with this. Well, we have to think through, are you struggling? Because that implies that you are fighting it yep. actively. Mm-hmm. Or are you using it? Are mm-hmm. you using lust to be a self-salvation project? Are you using anger to stand up for yourself and be a self-salvation project? It's so easy to say, I'm struggling because in our minds, that kind of alleviates mm-hmm. what we're dealing with. But the law doesn't alleviate anything. The law yeah. says, this is what's happening. Yeah. And so when we accept that, Here's the beauty of acceptance. You don't have to like what you accept, but you have to accept it to realize that it's your reality. And then you can take that reality to God in confession yes. and agree with what God already sees because God has given us the law. Agree with God that, yes, I am using this to save myself, knowing full well that your gospel says that I am saved, not based on my current actions, but based on the finished work of Christ. Yeah. You, man, you said this to me a while, maybe a year or two ago, and it was really clarifying because we think we're being honest when we say, hey, man, hey, bro, I'm really struggling. Really I'm really struggling with anger. I'm struggling with anger. And so, like, I'm an, like, listen, I was a violent kid, you know, I've been in trouble, been in fights, like, whatever, had a temper, little guy, little man syndrome. I got to fight. Like, you know, I well, I was tall and anger has been a part of my life. So, so it's not just a short no, guy it's thing? it's not just oh, a short okay. guy thing. It's I thought it was just, thing. okay. Yeah. So my insecurity led me to fight. So, um, but here's the thing. Like, we think like, well, I'm being honest. I'm struggling with sin. But what we're really saying, and then you help me to clarify this in the way I've, the way I've spoken about it since, is you're, you say I'm struggling with sin, which gives the impression you're fighting sin, but you're not. You're feeding on sin. Ooh. You're just admitting. Are you fighting or feeding? Yeah, that's what you're doing. You're, fi- you're feeding. You're, you're, you're feasting. But you're, you're being like, hey, man, what am I going to do? Like, you know, it's just, it, it's almost, it's a cop-out. It is a cop-out. To say, but now to say like, no, man, listen, I've been feasting on sin and it needs to stop. I need to learn repentance. I need to learn satisfaction in God. I need to learn to hate this part of me that I obviously love because I keep doing it. It's Paul in Romans 7, man. It's Paul getting frustrated and saying, man, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. Well, what the heck is he talking about? He's talking about this. This is the principle that's in all of us, this principle of sin. You have to learn. This is why I love in corporate worship, we have a confession where we confess our sin, our brokenness, our not just our brokenness, that's a part of it, 
our brokenness, right? But also our rebellion. We confess our sin, but we also confess Christ. We're not afraid to confess our sins because God doesn't judge us. He accepts us. Christ was judged in our place. And in that, we learn to hate the sin that Jesus died for, that Jesus suffered for, that Jesus delivered us from. We're still playing with it. We're still feeding on it. It's like that idea of confession is so important in the corporate and individual context because that's one of the ways in which we begin to break free from feeding and start fighting. I've been thinking about this idea that, because I've always thought about, well, I need to repent. I need to confess and repent. And in so many ways that can become a work for me. But I've been flipping it and thinking through the idea that God repents us. The law is applied. The gospel is received. We now are becoming who we are in Christ. And all that stuff starts to change the more I realize that, one, I am forgiven, yes, but I am also justified. I am made right with God, not based on what I have done, but based on what he has done for me. And ultimately, this idea of preaching the law and preaching the gospel to yourself or hearing it in the liturgy or hearing it in your service at your church, hearing it from outside of yourself that you are loved, you are forgiven. That frees me to not work on myself for the sake of my own salvation, yeah. but to work on myself for the sake of my neighbor. Yeah. Listen, Jesus says you've got to deny yourself. Mm-hmm. For what? Well, by you deny yourself, you put God first. Okay. And? And you put others, for, you put others before yourself. You seek their good. That's the essence of love, right? I'm going to seek your good. I'm going to seek your blessing. I'm going to seek your, I'm going to pursue your good. And so, yeah, a big part of repentance, I mean, repentance isn't, the, here, the Puritans talked about the difference between legal and evangelical repentance. Legal repentance was, I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing because it's messing up my life. It's making my life uncomfortable. I don't like the consequences of the sin, so I'm going to stop doing it. That's a kind of repentance. They called it legal because it's not based in the gospel or God. Evangelical repentance recognizes I'm going to stop sinning or I'm going to endeavor to stop sinning because this is an offense to God. It's a sin for which which Christ died and it harms my brothers and my sisters. So that is now a different kind of of repentance. And that's something that, I mean, really, if we want to get nerdy about it, repentance in the scripture, that's something that God grants to us. He grants repentance. It's like, it's a work. When you are repenting, you know, that's God at work in your life. Absolutely. And when you're repenting, you are focusing on God. Yes. But now you're seeing how your private sins have public ramifications. Mm -hmm. And I think so many of us, we see one half of the coin. We don't see the holistic nature of our sin. And so when I'm just struggling with sin, I think that I can contain it. I become a sin manager rather than a sin murderer. But that's good. But realizing that God has come, Mm -hmm. he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I've been reflecting on that recently. It's God who does the taking, but I can't accurately reflect on that if I don't know the estate that I find myself in to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of phrasing it because we want to manage our sins because it's easier than murdering our sins. At least we think it is. We're told to put sins to death, right? Like mortify the flesh. And what we will learn if we haven't learned it yet is that our sins will find us out. 
Yes. You can't manage them. You can't pretend they're not there. Like we think, and I wrote about this somewhere. We think that our sins will eventually die of old age. We think I just got to wait this out and my sins are eventually just going to die. They don't die. They grow like oak trees. They yes. plant deep roots. They get big trunks. They get big branches. You're, if you leave your sin alone, if you try to manage it, what you're really doing is cultivating it to flourish. So that's really good. You've, you gotta, we have to remind ourselves we're, we're called to die to sin, just like Christ died for our sins. We need to learn how to die to our sins. And that doesn't happen just by the exercise of sheer willpower, but by, I think it's a combination of things, but I think we learn to put sins to death by understanding who God is, who we are, what we're made for, and then what the life of faith is actually supposed to be. It's this ongoing, progressive, search-seeking, fighting for good, for glory. It's ongoing. As we are thinking about this ongoing journey that we are on, that we do not have it together, that we do struggle, and I mean struggle in the right way of we are fighting against these things that we hate. And often we realize that our sins are a self-salvation project. They're coming from a desire to fix ourselves or comfort ourselves or comfort pain or trauma or hurt from the past. That still doesn't make it right Mm -hmm. because what is right is that Jesus has lived, he's died, he's rose for us. He has come for us to rescue us from ourselves and our sin. And so as more mercy is about diving deep into how do we love God and love our neighbor, I feel like you've given us some very good things practically to ponder as we think about law and gospel, to think about, yes, We don't want to just leave the law behind because the law shows us what is required. But the gospel shows us that Christ gave that for us. And now we are free to fumble. We are free to flail. We are free to struggle, parentheses, Mm -hmm. because God is working in us salvation. I I don't want to give any impression that God excuses sin. No, but I, I, I do think about it like this. Maybe this isn't a great analogy, but I've found it helpful. I have four kids and I taught most of them how to, you know, walk, ride bikes, things like that. When my kids are learning to walk or ride a bike, they're wobbly. They're babies. They don't know what they're doing and they fall. And when they fall, because they're not listening to my instructions, when they're not, when they stop pedaling, on the bike and they wipe out. I don't yell at them. I love them. I'm like, oh, no, 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 you were doing good. You were doing good. You messed up. Let me get you back up. Let's get going again. I'm running with them. I'm right behind them. I'm right beside them. I'm, I'm going to help you do this. And I really feel like that's, you know, because my sins have been forgiven. There's no barrier between me and the Lord. I have perfect communion with God. He only loves me. And so when I am failing, he's not rolling his eyes like this jerk doesn't do what I say. He loves me like a father. And he says, I got you. You're messing up, but I got you. Let me, let me sit you back up. Let's get going again. That for me is a big encouragement to know, like in my missteps, in my rebellion, in my refusal to listen, God doesn't grow weary of my weakness. Uh, he loves me the same. And therefore he is always ready to encourage me and to empower me to actually grow and succeed. We either preach the law and that's all we do, or we preach grace without the law. 
And I would argue that we need both. To understand both aspects, we need both. I agree. Yeah. Law and gospel. It's all God's word. It's all his revelation to us that we might actually know him. And that's a note we end on. Like note to self, my first tome. Like note to self, your first Tommy. Your first tome. <laughs> it's a Tommy. It's Let's a Tommy. Admit, Yours it's is not more a of tome. a Tommy. That's yeah. that, you're right. I agree. I yeah, agree. It's, it's not a tome. No. I mean, it, it can't even, my book can keep a door open. Yours you're, cannot. Well, I don't know. As always, thank you for listening to More Mercy. We're glad you're here. If you've joined the paid partnership, take a moment and look at the resources. One of my favorites is the Let My People Go Handbook video curriculum. This companion guide trains you to better recognize and respond to your most vulnerable neighbors, walking you through the Let My People Go Handbook, which is also available on Amazon and for free as a downloadable ebook on lmpg.org. Till next time, regardless of where you are, know that there is always more mercy.